Well, good morning, church. Good morning again. My name is Drew. I am the worship pastor here. I am affectionately known by some as the tambourine man. I usually stand up here, sing rejoicingly to God and shake the tambourine. But today, I, I get to do something different. I get to look at the last segment of our series, Prepare Him Room, our Christmas series, in which we have looked at, in detail, the lineage of Jesus. Uh, we've taken a look at the genealogy as recorded by Matthew in his gospel, and we've gone through and we've picked some significant figures from Jesus's line of birth. Now, before I continue, I just want to remind you guys, uh, all of our sermons, audio and video, can be found on our website. So if you know, you're running around, it's been holiday season, uh, if you've missed any of the sermons in this series or any other sermons from past series, they are back cataloged on our website. Just go to the teaching page at South Valley and you'll find audio and video there. Further, unbeknownst to most, something that we just started doing that I'd like to share with you is that uh, every week on the teaching page, we are now listing our worship set. So all of the songs that we play that Sunday and the artist's arrangement that we do. I, as the worship leader, often get um, people coming up to me after service. Like, hey, I like that song that you guys did. You know, it was, it was in the middle of the set. It was kind of fast, kind of slow. It was about Jesus. <laughs> Remember that song? Can you tell me what it was about? What's the name? And sometimes he starts singing it to me and then that goes bad. Uh, so we can skip all of that. Um, no embarrassment, no uncomfortable situation for me. Just go to the web, website and you can find the list of songs there. Now, like I mentioned, for the last four weeks, we have spent some time looking at the lineage of Jesus and we've been pulling out some significant figures. Now, the thing that's been different about this series, interesting, is that we have been looking at exclusively significant female figures in the lineage of Christ. Now, this is odd for any ancient uh, genealogy to include women in it and to prominently include them, to highlight them. But this is exactly what we've been looking at for the last four weeks. I'm going to put up on the screen for you the four women that we have visited so far. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, I'm not going to review these stories in any kind of detail or at length. Um, you can go to the website and check out uh, the sermons that have spent time on each one individually, but today I would like to share with you a couple of themes that we have seen develop over the last four weeks as we've looked at these four significant women. The first theme, uh, Pastor Sam did an excellent job of bringing to our attention last week, and that is that God at any time is willing to remove someone who is inside his family, inside uh, Israel and take them out because of their own sinful disobedience. And at the same time, he will take someone from the outside and bring them into the story, into the family of Israel because of their willingness to serve him, to take part in his story, to do his will, uh, and to submit to him. I'll give you a couple examples. Story of Tamar. Tamar was married and her husband dies. Now, there's a man who's supposed to step in uh, and take care of her. It's the brother of the man who died. He does not do this. He refuses to take care of Tamar, and God takes him out of the story. He's no longer part of this incredible lineage story. The following story, Rahab, contains a good example of someone being brought in. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute. She has absolutely no association with God's people. In fact, she's 
living in a town that's about to be taken over by Israel. She's a, the town is about to be destroyed. She decides to help out God's people and becomes part of this incredible story as she professes her own personal faith to the God of Israel. At any time, God has shown us that he will take someone from the inside out and someone from the outside in according to his will. The second theme I'd like to point out to you is maybe a little bit more macro. It is that God is also very willing to step into sin, into messy situations that we as his creation create for ourselves as the rescuer. He will restore the situation so that he can maintain his promise, his promise that he originally made to Abraham that through Abraham's descendant, he would bless all peoples. And that promise was extended through the line of David would come a king, a kingdom that has no end. So hold on to those two themes in your head today as we discuss what will be our fifth and final significant female figure, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, I'm going to put up for you the genealogy as recorded by Matthew because this will help us to visualize where we are in this long story and how long we have to travel to get to Mary, Jesus' mother. Matthew, as he records his genealogy, divides it into three sections of 14 generations. This is the first section of 14 generations. And in this first section, we see three out of four of the women we have looked at so far. The second section contains Bathsheba at the top, listed as the wife of Uriah. And then we have another 14 generations up into the deportation to Babylon. Following this is the last section, and it is here that we find Mary at the end, of course, uh, the mother of Jesus. Now, it's a huge amount of time that passes between Bathsheba and Mary, 26 generations. Um, a lot goes on in this time, and we can't unpack it all, but it begins with David and Solomon as a pretty great time for Israel. There's a conquering and victory and rule with Israel, but then there's a lot of bad time, a lot of time with wicked kings and exiles and deportation. And if we were to just start with Mary and look backwards for 400 years, what we would see is 400 years of what we will call silence and turmoil. Silence because in this 400 years, we hear no new prophecy, no new revelation from God. It's recorded that Malachi, the last prophet, speaks word of Israel, and then there is 400 years of nothing new from the God of Israel to his people. And turmoil because they are constantly, Israel as a people, as a nation, is constantly under the pressure and power of foreign groups. First Assyria, then Babylon, Greece, and then finally Rome. And we find Mary, the story of Mary, while Israel is under Roman rule, which starts in the first century BC. Now it's important for us to kind of enter into, to take a look at what it would be like to live as the people of God in this 400 years of silence and turmoil. Very, very dark. Imagine, if you can, being born and dying within this 400 years. Imagine also that your mother and your mother's mother and your great great-grandmother are all born and all died in this 400 years of silence and turmoil, and your kids would, and your kids' kids would. 
This is a huge span of time to try to hold on to the hope that God has given you in this promise that someday, somehow, you will be part of a kingdom that has a king that will sit on the throne with no end. This does not look like this whatsoever during these 400 years. Imagine trying to stay devoted. Imagine trying to be someone who is committed to the law that God has given you. To stay devout, to stay pious. It would be very, very difficult. And for that reason, we can imagine that there's many Israelites that do stay devoted and many that don't. Well, this is the scene into which a phenomenal thing happens. Gabriel visits, the angel Gabriel visits Israel. But the story doesn't start with Gabriel visiting Mary. Instead, the story begins with the angel Gabriel visiting a relative of Mary, a priest whose name is Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Now, the text tells us that Zechariah is old in years. He and his wife are old in years, and they are without child. It turns out that Elizabeth is barren. Now, this is a crushing thing for them as a couple. The text tells us this is something that has been difficult for them. And also, at this time, to be without child is very shameful. You see, the culture would tell them at that time that it was probably because something they had done wrong. Some sort of curse from God himself, because there's some sort of break in relationship that they have with God. Something is off. And so they'd have to carry the weight of the pain and the shame that comes with not having a child. Now, the story tells us that Zechariah is performing his duties as a priest in the temple before God when the angel Gabriel visits him. And Gabriel comes with absolutely incredible news. And the news is that he will, after all of these years, have a child with Elizabeth. And that child will not just be any child. He will be great in the sight of God, and his name will be John. This is John the Baptist. And this John will come with the power and spirit of Elijah, something that would sound absolutely phenomenal to Zechariah, because Elijah is like a super prophet in Israel. So for your son to be compared to Elijah is an incredible thing. Further, this John would prepare room, would make way, would prepare the people of Israel for a coming king. Absolutely astounding news coming to a priest old in years, without child, and just patiently waiting on his God. Now, despite how incredible this news is, Zechariah's response isn't all that incredible. Uh, let me show you this passage here. He says, How shall I know this, Zechariah says to Gabriel, for I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So in response to Gabriel, Zechariah is asking for a sign. He says, how am I supposed to know this? I'm old. This shouldn't happen to me. And I like to imagine Gabriel's response. This didn't happen in the story, by the way. But I like to imagine Gabriel's response being like, oh, you're old? I didn't know. Let me go back up to God. We'll discuss if this is still possible. And then I'll come back and see if this is really going to happen. That's not what happened 
But the tone of this communicates that Gabriel is saying, hey, I stand in the presence of God, and he sent me to tell you this. Of course this can happen, and because you asked for a sign, I'll give you a sign, but it's not going to be a sign that you'd like. You will be mute for nine months. And he is, in fact, as the text tells us, mute for the entire pregnancy of his son, John. He goes back and tells Elizabeth. Elizabeth goes... um, into seclusion, as is common at this time for pregnant women. And for the entire nine months, Zechariah can't speak. In fact, he doesn't get to talk until after the baby's born, and they're asking what the name is of Zechariah. And he has to write it down and say, oh, no, it's John. And then he gets to speak. Now, it's on the heels of this story that we then have the story of the same angel Gabriel visiting a virgin In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, for clarification, when it says in the sixth month, what they're referring to is in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is a pretty dense passage, and I want to break down a few things for you, just to be clear. Betrothal is not a term that we use anymore. Um, What we use in its place is, is engagement, but they're not exactly the same. You see, betrothal in ancient Israel had a lot more weight to it than does our modern engagement. For example, when you are betrothed in this time period, you call your betrothed other your spouse, your wife and your husband already. Second, if you want to end a betrothal, you get a divorce. So a betrothal is actually more like uh, an incomplete marriage that then becomes completed upon physical consummation of of the marriage. So there's some weight to the relationship that Mary is in with Joseph. The text continues. And he came to her and said... Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, this greeting has built into it some rejoicing, some celebration. I should probably read it like, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. That would be more appropriate. This is the kind of excitement that Gabriel has when he sees Mary, and she's surprised. She doesn't understand why he would be excited to see her. She has had no previous indication, nothing to tell her that she would be favored by God. Why this excited greeting by God? So she's perplexed. It says, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this may be. Well, Gabriel clarifies for her. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now Mary's gonna have a response to hearing the name Jesus. It's not just going to be, oh, I like that name. I've heard that name before. Has a nice ring to it. We'll go with Jesus. No, Jesus has significance to it. Yeshua means rescuer. It means Yahweh saves. So for Mary to hear that her child is going to be named Jesus has great significance to it. 
He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. There's no, there's no room for a misunderstanding here. This child will be divine. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, Mary isn't going to go looking for a physical throne of, of his father, David. There's no throne of David at, at this time. No one's sitting on a throne in Israel. They are under Roman rule. What he's trying to tell her is much greater than, than that, much grander, that this child is the fulfillment finally after generation after generation after century after century of waiting and longing. He is the fulfillment of the promise that a king will come to sit on the throne of a kingdom that will have no end. What does Mary say? Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Absolutely incredible interaction here. Okay, now at first glance, this opening statement looks oddly similar to Zechariah's response, doesn't it? She asks how, and then she says, since I am a virgin, gives a reason why this seems improbable. But it's quite different, actually. See, Zechariah was asking for a sign, and Mary is just simply asking for an explanation. She doesn't understand how it could be possible, because it's never happened before, for a virgin young woman to have a child without the inclusion of a male. And we know it's different because the response by Gabriel is very different. The response by Gabriel to Zechariah is, why don't you believe me? Now you have a consequence. And the response by Gabriel to Mary is, I'll just give you the information you're looking for. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And it continues. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but she gets one. She gets some information she would not have otherwise known from Gabriel. She would not have known that Elizabeth is pregnant and in her sixth month, and she definitely wouldn't have assumed so, seen as she is barren. But the angel reminds her, there is no thing that is impossible with your God. And then one of the most incredible responses to any question asked in response to God's will, it says this, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departs from her. Now, at this point in the story, what do we know about Mary? Well, not a whole lot. We know she's young. We know she's somewhere as scholars land, 12 to 14 years old. This is betrothal period in ancient Israel, 12 to 14 years old. We know she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. We know she lives in Nazareth, which is kind of a nowhere town in, nor in northern Jerusalem. I'm sorry, in, in northern Israel. And we know she's a humble pious servant of God. We know based on her response. She has stayed sexually pure up and through her betrothal. She responds to God in a way that shows that she reveres him, fears him, honors him. 
She is one of the Israelites who, even though there has been 400 years of silence and turmoil, she has held on to God's promise. She's held on to God's promise. She's bought in. Now, we don't know how much Mary is able to process at the time of hearing all of this incredible news, right? We don't know if she's able to think, okay, what are the consequences of this life change going to be? Her life is going to flip upside down completely. Everything she thought was going to happen is no longer going to happen. She will now bear the Son of God himself. Imagine trying to communicate this to your friends and family and to your community and what kind of response you would get, especially from those who are cynical after 400 years of silence and turmoil. What is she signing up for? She's signing up for a life of difficulty. And Joseph has to find out this information too. And so she realizes, maybe not now, but in the very close future, that this may cost her her husband. How's he going to take this information? You're pregnant by God? He's going to have to believe her or he's going to leave her. And so it comes weighty for Mary. Very, very much is going to cost her. Now, what do we know about Joseph? Well, not much either. We don't know how old he is. We know he's betrothed to Mary. We know he's from Nazareth. We also know that uh, because he has to travel to Bethlehem during the census, that he has some sort of heritage lineage that links him back to Bethlehem. Now, this makes sense because the text tells us that Joseph is of the line of David. And David, as we know, King David, is from Bethlehem. We don't know much more about Joseph. We don't know much more yet. We will find out quite a bit about Joseph when we find out how he responds to this phenomenal news. Now, we don't find it here in this book of Luke. We find it in another gospel, the gospel of Matthew. And I'll show you Joseph's response to this incredible news that paints a picture of who Joseph is. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as, she, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, this begins before Joseph knows from the angel that it is, in fact, the Son of God. And what is his response before he's informed? He's going to divorce her. Now, at first glance, this doesn't seem all that commendable. But we need to understand what's going on at the time. First of all, it was highly um, popular at the time if you find out that your soon-to-be wife has a baby with someone else, whether it be God or another man, it's not you to shame the woman, to cast her out. And if you try to prove that she was in an adulterous relationship, she could be killed. In fact, it was the law that she should be killed. But Joseph wants to spare Mary from all of this. He loves her. He cares for her. He respects her. And so, unwilling to put her to shame, he, he gives what is a, a very graceful um, solution to the situation, which is a quiet divorce with no shaming. 
It says he's a just man. He's morally upright. He's a pious Jewish man who cares about the law, cares about his relationship with God, and about doing the right thing. Then he hears that the child is, in fact, the child of God, and he stays with her. Now, this is also an incredible thing. Why? Because everything that's going to happen to Mary will now happen to Joseph. All of the shame, all of the difficult situation, the running when a king is trying to kill your child, Joseph is signing up for all of these things. He is ready and willing to abandon any plan that he has for his life to be with Mary and to raise a child that he himself did not even provide. He's like the ultimate stepfather, an incredible man. And in the story where Jesus and Mary always take the highlighted spot, Joseph often gets overshadowed. But we need to pause and take a look at the kind of man that God chooses when he's looking for a man to raise his own son. Look at Joseph. Look at the kind of man he is. A man willing to give up his own desires, his own plans. A man willing to sacrifice, to submit to God. Okay, now the story continues. And Mary, uh, surprisingly, decides to go visit Elizabeth. This is not something that's normal for a young 12 to 14-year-old newly pregnant woman to travel 70-so miles to a distant town to visit a distant relative. But this is precisely what happens. Mary shows up at the house and greets them, says, I'm here, welcome, greetings, and this incredible response from Elizabeth. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary shows up, and Elizabeth showers her with blessings, and then commends her and says, Blessed are you for believing God at his word. And the baby within Elizabeth, John, six months in, physically leaps in her womb at the presence of Mary and at Jesus. Such an awesome story. Now, what follows this immediately after is something called the Magnificat. The Magnificat is a hymn, a poem, a song of praise written by Mary that has for millennia resonated through the church. It has been read time and time and time in churches for hundreds and thousands of years as one of the most, most famous pieces of literature as a response to who God is. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this. My soul magnifies the Lord, this is Mary speaking, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. 
It is here in the Magnificat that we learn the most about Mary. This has been studied time and time over, and there's a lot to extract, but there's only one theme I want you to see clearly here in the Magnificat. I'm going to highlight some of this text for you because it paints a perfect picture. The theme I want you to see is that Mary very clearly sees the greatness of her God. She has a clear, clear understanding of how great her God is. All of this is purely about how great God is. Look what it says. He has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry. He sends away the rich. He helps his servant Israel. He spoke to our fathers. He finally fulfills his promise. My God is great. Mary knows how great her God is. And as we look at this significant character in the lineage of Jesus, a significant figure, why is it so important to understand that Mary knows the greatness of her God? Well, because it explains some things about Mary. Because Mary knows the greatness of her God, Mary is humble. You see, to know how great God is, in relationship to him, you understand where you are. God's greatness, God's power, and God's love for you will inevitably make you feel humble. It will humble you not just in action, but in spirit and in heart. There's a lesson here for us. If we study and saturate ourselves in the greatness of God, it will inevitably lead to us being more humble. And why is this important? Because it was Mary's humility that allowed her to submit to the will of God. Now, I'm a math guy. That's what I went to school for, was for math. And I like things to be like, like equations. So in my mind, I really like this thing because it kind of works this way. Saturate, saturate yourself in the greatness of God equals it will make you humble equals it will help you to submit. Now, I know it doesn't work one-to-one -one like in math. That's called the transitive property. A leads to B, B leads to C. Anybody know this? No, okay. Not a whole lot of math people. It's okay. It's a great way to look at the way this works. Saturate yourself in understanding how great your God is. Worship him. Focus in on who he is, on what he's done. And you will correct within you, by the help of the Holy Spirit, any kind of misunderstanding about your own pride and your own state. It will humble you. And now humble, you are in a much better place to submit to the will of God. Now, this submission by Mary cost her dearly. When she submits to the will of God, she is signing up for the pain that Jesus himself will carry. Think about it. Who will suffer alongside Jesus more than his own mother? Who will experience the things that Jesus experiences more than his own mother? A mother's pain for her child is incredible. Mary, who one day holds Jesus as a baby and looks into his eyes, holds him softly. Mary would one day have to look up into the same eyes, tortured, suffocating, bleeding to death, in complete agony on the cross. Imagine what that was like. 
Mary suffers incredibly in what she submits to. Now, the hard part about this is this is true a lot of times in the Bible. To submit to God causes us some suffering. It's kind of part of the deal. There's a a theologian, a Scottish theologian named William Barclay, biblical scholar, who put it this way. To be chosen by God so often means at one and the same time a crown of joy and a cross of sorrow. The piercing truth is that God does not choose a person for ease and comfort and selfish joy, but for a task that will take all that head and heart and hand can bring to it. God chooses a man in order to use him. Mary got this. Joseph got this. They were all in. They were willing to sacrifice to submit. And if those aren't a good enough example for us, of course, who's the ultimate sufferer? Jesus himself. Jesus takes off his crown of glory in his rightful position as king to step into the mess that we create and to suffer incredibly. Jesus suffers so much that he achieves the name man of sorrows. It changes the very identity of who he is. And he submits fully to the will of the Father, 100%. Now, this is difficult for us. It's difficult because uh, it causes us to self-reflect and to look at what kind of submission we're doing on a regular basis. Now, the reality is that today in 2019, almost 2020, uh, in California, in this time, we're not all, and very few of us, are going to be called to this level of suffering and submission. But it still absolutely 100% applies to us as Christians. What are the things that you are not willing to give up today? What are the things that are causing you an inability to submit to the Father? We have to reflect on these things. I mean, look at this slide here. Look at the fourth line. Ease and comfort and selfish joy. That's the mantra of our whole civilization. That is everything that our culture tells us to strive after. And yet, that's precisely what God is calling us to give up in order to submit to him. And in different ways. Not martyrdom. But the pain and suffering that you have, are you submitting it to God? Are you shaking your fists at him? Or are you saying, your will, Lord, help me to stay focused on Christ during this. Help me to get rid of the things that are addictions for me, that are causing me to put you to the side and put those things in the middle. What things are you not submitting because you're chasing after ease and comfort and selfish joy? This is the reality that Jesus calls each of us to do this, these things. And we know this because he says it himself. Fourteen chapters later, this is Jesus speaking to anyone who wants to hear it. Those that are following after him. He says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you want to call Jesus Lord, you have to let him be Lord over all parts of your life. 
You must submit all things to him. Now, this is an incredibly heavy weight to carry on our, on our shoulders as Christians because it's, it's hugely convicting and it's incredibly difficult. But there's good news. And the good news is that we're not left alone to do this, are we? You see, when Jesus died and he resurrects and he ascends to heaven, he tells us he's sending a helper. And who is that helper? The Holy Spirit. It is God in spirit form. It is God himself who indwells in the Christian. Now, the challenge for each of us today is to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit guides you to humble yourself and to submit. The Holy Spirit guides us. He leads us. He corrects us. He directs us. He draws us close to the Father. He shows us where we're not in alignment with him. Gently, lovingly pushes us towards the will of God. Are you listening? Are you listening when the Holy Spirit directs you to be in the word, to read about the greatness of your God, to read about the promises that he has for you? Are you listening when the Holy Spirit tells you to carve out time in your day to pray for those you love, for those who are suffering, for those who are your enemies? Are you listening to the Holy Spirit who is here to help and to guide you? We must all decide to listen to the help that Jesus has left for us. This is the good news, you guys. This is the good news that he did not leave it for us to do on our own, but he left it to be done with the help of God himself, the Holy Spirit. We have that. We can call on it. We can rest in it. We can lean into it. Listen to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in your life today. Because the goal truly is to say what Mary could say. To say, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Right? The ushers are going to come forward and um, pass out communion. And we're going to take communion together. Now, communion is for those who call Jesus their king. So if that's not you today, if you're still trying to figure out where, where Jesus sits in your life, that's okay. Just let communion pass. It is for the Christian. I mentioned at the beginning of our time here today that there were two themes that we kept seeing pop up in our series. The first theme was uh, that God steps into the mess. He steps into the sin um, by intervening and making his promise Come, come through, making his promise actually happen. Well, of course, the perfect um, end of that theme is Jesus. For it is Jesus who literally steps into our world and cleans up our mess and brings us into the story. And the other theme, that God often in any time will take somebody from the inside and put them outside and take someone from the outside and puts them inside. Well, Jesus is the end of this theme too, isn't he? Except with a twist. Because in all of the other instances, someone gets removed from the inside because of their own sin and disobedience and someone gets brought in because of their own proclamation of faith. But in our case with Jesus, Jesus takes off his crown and he steps out, not because of his own sin and disobedience, but because of ours. He takes ours on his shoulder. 
And then he brings us, rebellious, unwilling to do the, the will of the Father. He gives us his sonship, his daughtership. He brings us in to the family to sit at the table of God. What a gift. Once you have the, the bread and the juice, I invite you to stand as we take communion together. In communion, we are to reflect on the greatest sacrifice ever made for us, that Jesus, the Son of God, would break his body so that we could be restored to the Father. His body would be broken, his his blood would be poured out so that we would have new relationship, new covenant with God. Now, I ask you to reflect on that with me, that incredible gift with me, but at the same time, I ask you to proclaim your allegiance to him, to say to God, I'm all in. Those things that I have held back from you that I do not want to submit to you, I ask you now for the help that I need to do that. I want to be able to say, behold, as you will, God, that is what my life will look like. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, his body was broken, and he said, take this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you, obtaining a new covenant for you. Take this and drink. Lord, I thank you for the examples that we have seen in this, this series, Prepare Him Room series, that has shown us how willing you are to step into the mess and to bring us home to you. I pray as a response, God, and as you help us, that we would rededicate ourselves to you in a way that helps us to submit the things that we have been holding on to the things that have been standing in the way of growing closer and closer to you from doing your will, the things that we hold on to too tight, the ease and the comfort of this world, God. Help us to draw near to you. Help us to love you more each and every day by the power of the Holy Spirit who we can call upon to lead us to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.